Welcome to the teaching ministry of Faith Bible Church. We pray as you listen to the following message, you will be encouraged and equipped to passionately pursue Christ. For more information, please visit our website at fbcevansville.com. You and I, Christians, have staked our entire lives on one event in history. And the wise aged among us would say, don't put all your eggs in one basket. What happens if you drop the basket? But we're contradicting them on this point. All of our eggs are in exactly one basket. All of our hopes, all of our aspirations, everything we long for, everything we build our lives upon. It's on the cross. It's on an event that happened, really happened, 2,000 years ago. There was a real man, Middle Eastern. There was a real cross, two wooden beams. He really was put upon that cross and for six literal hours suffered, bled out his life. For three hours, truly, the sky went dark. And he said in real and audible words, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And he really died at a real time, in a real location, just outside of Jerusalem, capital city of Israel, there by the Mediterranean. It happened, and not only did it happen, but it is the most important thing that has ever happened. Your life, my life, without that happening, nothing. Waste, death, judgment. But with that happening... If our lives are now tied to what happened during those six hours, you have hope. It doesn't matter what else is happening in your life. You have hope. You will have paradise. Just as Jesus said to the thief on the cross next to him, today you will be with me in paradise. There was so much bad happening in that man's life. There was only bad happening in that man's life. His own conscience for the sins he'd committed that led him to that cross... The fact that he was dying in an agonizing way, that the only thing he had to look forward to before Jesus uttered those words was the mere cessation of his suffering by his death. And once Jesus said, today you will be with me in paradise, he had at that moment to look forward to what he's enjoying this very day, 2,000 years afterward. It's paradise. Why? Because of the cross that was there beside him on that hill. And the same stands true for all of us. It's that event more than anything else. There are other events in history that are interesting. And certainly they have an impact upon us. World War II happened. But it's not the millions who died in that great conflict that warm our chilly souls. It's one who died. Yes, Neil Armstrong made a little step that was a great leap forward for mankind. But for us, the only history that matters is Christ leaving this earth to go on that cross and to die. It was right of Isaac Watts to write and right of us to sing what we sang just now. When I survey the wondrous cross on which the Prince of Glory died, my richest gain I count but loss and poor contempt on all my pride. Sins forgiven, 
More than that, sins conquered, conscience cleared, relationships reconciled, paradise earned, all because of a cross. And therefore, we glory in the cross. And as we come to the end of Paul's letter to the Galatians, as we descend on the final part of this letter, really, we are ascending up to what we can rightly consider its highest peak. This is a crescendo, not just for Galatians, but for all of Scripture. This is maybe my favorite passage in all the Bible, at least one of them. We are going up the hill as Paul will summarize the entire letter that he has written. And in doing so, he summarizes the whole Christian message. And when we get up the hill, we see one object, and it is the cross. So let's see what he says here in Galatians 6, verse 14. But far be it from me to boast, except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, by which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. Here is Paul's summary. Here is just about his final statement in this letter. It is stated, as you can see the but at the beginning there, in contrast to the Judaizers, the false teachers, who were to the Galatians saying, look to the flesh, be circumcised, do this, don't do that, eat this, don't eat that, look here now to this world and the things that make up this world. And Paul steps in at the end of this letter and says, no, no, for me, it's not that way. For me, I glory in one thing, only one thing, and it is the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. This was Paul's boast. This is what he built his whole life upon. This is what he lived for. This is what he died for. And God is not finished with any of us Christians until we ascend to those same heights. It's a long trek to get there from a focus on this world to the cross and all that it is and all that it means. But God is not finished with us until we, like Paul, boast only there, glory in the cross. And to that end, he's provided for us this passage. So we're going to see Paul's boasting and what that means, and then we're going to see the cross in which he boasted. But our goal for all of us whether you presently know Christ or not, is to, by the end of this, especially by the end of our lives, but even by the end of this, that we would be like Paul, those who boast only in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. So let's look to this passage under these two headings, and we're starting here with boasting, because that requires some explanation. Look once more at the passage. But far be it from me to boast, except, and that means, positively put, Paul does boast. But the except means only in this one thing, except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, by which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. The first thing that we can say about boasting, before we get any further, is that boasting is an energetic act. You do not 
boast half asleep on your couch late at night. You do not boast sitting, waiting at the BMV for an hour. Boasting is something energetic. It's something living. The very style of this verse, you might think this is unusual preaching one verse. Is that a bit extreme? I promise you it is not. It is extreme that we're only doing one sermon. Because this verse, even the style of this verse is elevated. It's not, it's, there's no normal verse in the Bible, but if the, this is not at all a normal verse. Let me show you that even from the style of how this is stated. In the Greek, the first word is actually not but, but it is emoi, which means to me. Paul begins putting this emphasis saying, what I'm about to say relates directly to me, how I think. And he follows it with but because he's contrasting how he thinks with those Judaizers who are focused upon this world and trying to get you to walk your way up to heaven by your own diligence in external activities. And he says, no, 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 that's how they think. But for me, this is a lot like what we saw in Philippians in one of my other favorite passages. For me to live is Christ, to die is gain. Maybe nobody else thinks that way, Paul says. But for me, that's how I think. Similarly here, he starts with the very first word, to me. I'm not going to boast in anything but the cross. There's something intensely personal here. There is that contrast that is happening. That's the second word. But not like the Judaizers. Right after that, again in the original language of Greek, there is a little phrase that many of you know in English translation from the book of Romans. Because when you go through the book of Romans, depending on your translation of the Bible, you are familiar with something like Paul saying, may it never be, certainly not, surely not. That translates in Romans as here, this little phrase, may genoita. You remember Ernie, when we went through Romans, used to say, don't even think about parking there. The idea is Paul is talking about some hypothetical situation, and then he says, don't even think about that. That could never be true. No, it's not a mild statement. It's not like, no. It is a strong negation. And that's what we find in our passage right after, to me, but unlike them, may genoita, may it never be. And Paul has actually used this phrase two times in Galatians already, chapter 2, verse 17. He asks, is Christ a servant of sin? Now, a statement like that, you don't just say like, oh, no, no, he's not. You say, may genoita, no, he is not a servant of sin. We saw in 321, is the law contrary to the promises of God? God's conflicted with himself, this, this. May genoita, no, surely not. That's what you find in this passage. To me, unlike them, what I'm about to say, may it never be that, what? That I should boast in anything but the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. And honestly, that last little phrase there is maybe more than anything else, which shows us that this is a verse so elevated in Paul's presentation of it. Because you know that he could have said, may it never be that I should boast in the cross. And would anyone here misunderstand him? 
Would anyone think that he were speaking of some cross other than the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ? But notice he doesn't say that. He doesn't even say the cross of Jesus. That would be simpler, use less ink. He doesn't say the cross of Christ. He uses the full, really the fullest title he can of Jesus Christ. May it never be that I should boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. It's not strictly necessary for him to use all those words. He's using those words for the relish of it, because of the emotion behind it. When your mother uses your full name, including the middle, and it isn't necessary, but you know exactly what it implies. Paul here has an emotion that leads to him stating the full name. And if you just survey briefly the New Testament, every time Paul says, our Lord Jesus Christ, it is almost every single time when he's making some lofty statement. It's not him talking about Tychicus over here or bring my scrolls and parchments. It is him in a blessing, in a doxology glorifying God at the conclusion of a letter driving home his point, and then he brings out the our Lord Jesus Christ. And when it's modifying a word as it often is, that word is not something small. It's not the sandal of our Lord Jesus Christ. It is always something like the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, God Himself, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. This is a fullness of a title that Paul reserves basically always for lofty statements. But this is the only time in the Bible that he takes what society at that time would consider the lowest, the vilest, a cross. He takes it from the dirt where Cicero, the great Roman orator, said it's, it's not even fitting for a Roman citizen to speak the word cross. There were those supposedly who would say, oh, he died on the unlucky tree. It was a euphemism. We don't even talk about crosses. He said you shouldn't even think about it as a good Roman citizen. It's so far beneath. It's, to the Jews, it's a stumbling block. It's a curse, according to the Old Testament. And to the Greeks, it is foolishness. It's the opposite of being the great emperor and the great empire, conquering others. You are conquered. And Paul reaches down and takes that cross and, to him, lifts it into one of the loftiest statements of the New Testament. It is the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. This is a crescendo. There is emotion. I don't want to overplay it. I don't know if the Paul was crying or something like that, but there is an emotion as Paul probably still with his own hand, as we saw previously, is writing this out. He means what he's saying here. So even the style shows us that whatever boasting is, when Paul comes to the subject of boasting, there is some energy behind it. And that is exactly true of boasting. I had pointed out last week that in the New Testament, the word boast or the idea of boasting, while to us in English is basically always bad, it's not that way in the New Testament. Actually, there's a fair bit of good boasting and bad boasting in the New Testament. It really depends on what you're boasting in. If you're boasting in something you ought to be boasting in, glorying in, then good. If you're boasting in the Father or the Son or the Holy Spirit or their work in and through you and the emphasis is there on that, 
Good. So Paul can boast in his ministry because it's God making the appeal through him. Paul can boast in his Lord Jesus Christ. Paul can boast in the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ. What Paul is entirely against is a bad kind of boasting like the Judaizers did, a boasting in yourself in a full fleshly manner, just me by myself, my works, my abilities. Paul says, what do you have that you haven't received? That's nonsense. Or again, boasting in the flesh by getting these converts circumcised. Nonsense. Don't boast in that. It's non- that's just pride. That's the Pharisaic pride in front of others. Has no lasting value for anyone. That's bad boasting, but there's good boasting. The good kind of boasting is an energetic exaltation. In fact, in Romans... Three times consecutively, Paul uses this exact word for boasting, but the ESV has it, rejoice. We rejoice in our sufferings. We rejoice in God. We rejoice in hope. He's saying we boast in it. We've translated it rejoice because in our language that makes more sense. That's what he's getting at. It is an exulting. It is a rejoicing. It has energy behind it is the idea One commentator noted that in Paul's day, it would have been very significant for this new religious group, the Christians. It would have been very significant in their context even to admit the cross of their Lord Jesus Christ. For their great leader to have died upon a Roman cross, even for them to admit that in a whisper, even for them to give that as a concession, but here's what we believe, would have been remarkable. But they don't admit Paul does not admit the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. There are times in your workplace or at home with other moms, whatever, where in shame we admit the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. It doesn't, don't admit it. What are you admitting? You don't admit the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ. You glory in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. That is so odd in that day. We've had thousands of years of all kinds of these iconography and ways of using the cross as a symbol. It's on top of all the churches, so we're used to the cross. But for them, it wasn't. So to boast in the cross today might make a little more sense because some people will even respect that in your culture. Nobody respected that in their culture. Didn't matter. Paul said, I boast in this cross because of how great this cross is. I exult in it. And sometimes preachers compare that to exulting in an electric chair. That would be accurate. That's how it was viewed. Rather morbid. Say, don't let children hear about that. This is too morbid. No, 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 Paul says. For me, it is up here. The word of the cross, Paul wrote to the Corinthians, is folly to those who are perishing. But to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. Is that the way that you think of the cross? It is easy for the cross to be merely a decorative item. And for most of us as Americans, that's at least where it begins. It kind of starts as a decorative item. For some of us, it stays that way all the way through. You respect it, great, good, but it doesn't have any real practical bearing on how you think or what you say or what you do. If there wasn't the cross in your culture, your life would basically look exactly the way that it looks right now. Boasting in the cross means at the very least, the fact that the cross happened, that Jesus died there, 
should change what your life looks like, <laughs> including especially how you talk and interact with others. It should at the very least produce not, I'm not going to say this unending sense of excitement. You, your heart is racing. You would die. You can't live long with that much adrenaline, okay? So it's not going to be like that all the time, but it should be a life that when you think of the cross, leans more in that direction than the boringness of a decorative item. Boasting! And there should, Lord willing, even be times where God gives you insight and you do feel that excitement about the cross and all that it means for you. This should be, not to overstate matters, but you know, this is not, this is not you doing something incredibly boring and dull, but you just have to do it. Is that what you think of the cross? Is that what you think of Christianity? It's paying your taxes. You just Ah, you've got to do it. You've got to pay your taxes and you've got to go to church, you know. You've got to think about the cross and you've got to pray. And Is that how Paul thinks about this? <laughs> Paul is a bit more like, how shall we put it, catching the game-winning football in Super Bowl 57. Is that the one we're on? Okay, does he catch the football and then, you know, okay, what, did I, what are we having for lunch? What are we having for lunch today? Put the football down. He glories, he exalts, he rejoices. And there ought to be some of that flavor in our, it starts with our thinking about the cross, and then in our living and in our speaking. There is an energy, it's not a fake energy, and you know this happens in churches where, since now I've preached this, and everybody's like, okay, we got to be energetic about the cross, and so you just kind of pretend to be energetic about the cross. And we don't want that kind of a fakeness, but you might have to fake it till you make it. That's okay. We do want among us, though, a genuine enthusiasm about what Jesus did during those six hours 2,000 years ago. That should be a topic that comes up in your life every single week. Every week. And then we can move from there toward every day. But let's just start with every single week. Now... That's boasting. It's a glorying. It's an exulting. Not in the flesh like the Judaizers, but for Paul, for him, he wants to boast in nothing but the cross. There are other things Paul does say in the New Testament he boasts in, like Jesus Christ. But it's all through the cross. It's all through the cross. Now, we need to move from the act of boasting itself. Because like I said, there can be a false boasting where you just drum up the energy Genuine boasting comes from you really understanding with the enlightenment of the Holy Spirit what you're boasting in and becoming so excited about that that you can't help it. So we need to turn our attention from the boasting that we need to be doing to the object of our boasting, which is the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. And let's read this verse again with that in mind. But far be it from me to boast except... In the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, by which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. Now, there are so many reasons that we could boast or exult in the cross what Jesus accomplished there. And like I've said before, just so it's clear in your mind, when we talk about exulting in the cross, we're not saying we're going to get an icon of a cross or some large cross and exult in the actual wooden beams. 
The wooden beams of the cross Jesus actually died upon, although they live on in mythology throughout the Middle Ages, they're gone. They've deteriorated. They were wooden. They're gone. They're gone. We're not exulting in that actual physical material, because again, that'd be kind of this worldly type of stuff. We are exulting in specifically what happened on that cross in those six hours. Jesus dying on that cross. All that that means, that's what we're exulting in. Now, there are so many reasons for us to be excited about what happened on that cross. Let me list a few of them before I get more specific into what uh, Paul is thinking of here. Because of what happened on that cross, if you, this moment, have your faith fixed on Jesus Christ for your salvation and on Him alone, there will be no judgment for any of your sins. Not one of them. You will give an account on the last day so that you know how much you'll be rewarded. Is that amazing? But you will not be punished for any sin you've committed, including the sins this last week, including the sins before you knew Christ, the things of which you are now ashamed. It's as if you never did it. Now, of course, there are human consequences that you live through, sure. But there's no reckoning. There's no punishment. It happened upon Christ those six hours when He died on the cross. When God looks at you, you're innocent. Believe on the Lord Jesus and you will be saved. Do you believe on the Lord Jesus? The promise is you're saved from all coming judgment. Jesus said of Himself, even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and to give His life as a ransom for many. You were enslaved to sin, headed to hell, to destruction, nothing you could do, can't break the chains, no hope for you. Jesus comes in, ransom money in hand, pays it to the Father, you are set free, and that's how you are living your life today. You are not a slave, you are free. No judgment no enslavement to your former sins. You're still fighting them. I get it. But you've been ransomed by the cross. And not just in the past, but we read, for by a single offering, Jesus has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified for all time. This week, last week, two weeks ago, the last time you really blew it, you are perfected as far as God's concerned. You're still innocent. Isn't it a fascinating thing in light of this? Some will think these are old-fashioned concepts, that as a society, we've moved past this idea of guilt and judgment. That was like a puritanical thing. That was the scarlet letter. That was an age past, Salem witch trials. But now, as a society in the West, we've moved beyond this whole guilt and innocence and whatever. But the facts on the ground are that if you look at our whole society, and especially as ages get younger, can you really say we've left the sense of guilt in the past? Has that happened <laughs> to anybody? Actually, what's going on now, especially when you look at these younger ages, is, I mean, I was born yesterday, but from what I can tell, an increasing sense of self-loathing, not less. And we've had generations who have emphasize primarily self-esteem, like feel good about yourself, 
really with the intention of throwing off the shackles of what they considered a puritanical past where they were telling you you're bad and that's what messed us all up. And so now if we just tell everybody you're good, then they'll start feeling good. We won't have a World War III. But you know what's happened is even with all the labor that's gone into that self-esteem thing, there's not higher self-esteem. It's not happened. People are walking around with a happy face but with an immense amount of guilt, self-loathing, you can call it what you want. Existential fears. What's even the purpose of my life? Am I justifying my own existence here? Am I living up to whatever standard I even have for myself? Do people not have that anymore? That's everywhere. In a sense, that's like the primary issue going on for just about everybody in one form or another. That is the universal problem. At least it's reflective of a universal problem. This sense of guilt that people carry around is pointing to what is truly an ongoing, unchanging, universal problem. You feel guilty, in part at least, because you actually are guilty. You know yourself. You know what you thought. You know what you did. Who are you fooling? You're guilty. You sin. You can't even keep your own standards. That's not changed. That was true in the puritanical times. That's true today. And therefore, guilt, self-loathing, misery, baggage... What's the answer to all of this? What are we going to do with all of this crippling guilt? Suicides increase, there's misery, there's agony, relationships fall apart. What are we going to do? A new government program, which can be useful, but no. The cross of our Lord Jesus Christ is the universal solution to the universal problem. People walking around with a terrible fear of death because they have some sense that they've messed things up and if there's any kind of judgment, any kind of God, they're in trouble. And now here you are walking around with none of that. Yeah, it tries to creep back in. Push it out. No, through the cross, the fear of death, which Scripture says Satan had in his hand like a weapon, you're his slave. Fear of death, fear of death, judgment's coming. And through the cross, Christ disarms him. No fear of death. Perfect love that you see on the cross casts out fear. You are accepted now and forever. It's not even like graded. It's not even steps of acceptance. Immediately like the thief on the cross, when you trust in what Jesus did there, fully accepted now, forever, you'll still deal with those feelings of guilt. You got to work through those. But the root of them is cut out. There's no basis. There's no real guilt for any of God's people. We could go on and on because the cross reconciles us also, not just to God, but to each other. The cross of Christ is the solution to your marriage problems. Did you know that? Because the cross undercuts the power of sin in your life. Christ died on the cross. When you trust in him, you die with him on the cross. Somewhat like Paul's saying here. The end of the sins you're fighting against are at the cross. The crushing of your greatest enemy, Satan, accomplished at the cross. Basis of your hope, it's the cross. We could go on and on. There are a million reasons for you to be excited about the cross. But what I want to point out in this passage is that actually Paul is not really primarily focused on those reasons I've just given. Paul would agree with all of those 100%. But in this passage, he's focused more narrowly on one function of the cross. And you can tell by the end of our passage, 
he mentions the cross that he's boasting in, and then he says this about it, by which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. And any good students of the Bible here are thinking, okay, the New Testament typically uses world to refer to sin or this sinful world system. And you might be led to think that mainly what Paul means here is, because of trusting in the cross, I've been forgiven and cut off from partying, sex, and drugs, or pharisaical pride, and self-focus, whatever your sinful past is, it's dead to me now. Now, that's true, but I don't think that's what Paul's saying here. If you want an example or a reason why I think that's the case is look at just verse 15 that we'll see next week. He starts with, for, meaning what he's about to say, is built upon what he just said about the cross. Crucified, the world's crucified by it. I'm crucified to the world. For, neither circumcision counts for anything nor uncircumcision. Wait a minute, I thought we were talking about partying, and sin, and drugs, and an old way of life. No, no, Paul is thinking about circumcision and uncircumcision. He's still thinking about that conflict with the Judaizers who think they can earn salvation by earthly actions, specifically actions of the Jewish law. That's how Paul is using world here. And if you want further confirmation of that, we saw world just one time used in Galatians, in Galatians 4.3. Paul, talking of the Jewish people before Christ came, said, in the same way we also, when we were children, so we had the law, Christ hadn't come yet, we were enslaved to the elementary principles, the stoicheia of the world. And Paul there meant that the Jewish people before Christ came had all these external regulations, including circumcision, that they were required to do. And it's like they were, in this case, enslaved, captive to those things, waiting to be set free by Christ later. But now Christ has come, and Paul's whole argument in the letter is, so don't go back to the stoicheia. Those are things do not taste, do not touch, that have to do with this life. Even those rules of the Jewish law, which were very good, that applied previously, that had to do with this life. What you touch, what you taste. Circumcised, not circumcised, dietary restrictions, religious festivals you observe. When Paul is thinking of world, that's what he's thinking of here. Those things that just relate to this material world, just the flesh, just here, nothing above it. What Paul is rejecting, what he says there's been a double crucifixion through the cross of, is any sense that by the things we do here, physically, materially, we can get ourselves right with God and clear away the offenses that we've put in front of Him. That's what the Judaizers were trying to do, even using the law. And Paul says, hey, I used to think like that too. You know, actually, that is the most natural way for any of us to think. It's your default setting when you come fallen into this world, is to think, wow, I'm guilty. I've messed things up. Let me fix it. It's like your toddler, two, three years old, and they've got some pieces that have to go together. They've broken, and you go to help them easily go. And they say, no, 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 let me fix it. <laughs> let me fix it. <laughs> it's like, it's going to be a long, long night of trying to fix that. That's the human predicament. That is worldly. 
That is our natural, worldly way of thinking. It's how the Judaizers thought. It's how you grew up thinking. Everyone. I mess things up with God. Let me, God, let me, no, stay, wait, let me fix this. Paul himself used to think this way. We saw this in Philippians. He said, I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh. If anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. I tried to fix it. Look, circumcised on the eighth day. There's the circumcision. I had that. Of the people of Israel. That's God's chosen people by birth of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews. As to the law, what I'm doing here, a Pharisee. I was zealous. Paul was trying to fix it. And now he looks at that and goes, that's worldly. That's, it's just about this world. Same thing happens in our Christian circles, our religious circles today, where we just think, well, if I'm going to church, if I'm going to church, you know, I'm at least doing better than the next guy who's not going to church. But you know what? Going to church, and it's so important, it's an external thing you do. See? I can't get you right with God. That can't clear your record, but it's how we all think. Well, I give a good bit of my money to people who need it. You do that. See how you do that? The worldly way to think is all those added up. It's a religious rat race. And Paul was a part of it. He was going beyond his contemporaries, trying to be as religious as he could be to get himself right with God, keep as much of the law as he can. And then God opened his eyes by first closing them on his way to Damascus. He opens his eyes and he sees the cross. He was so focused on working, 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 because that's what the world said. Keep working, Paul. Keep doing it. You'll get there. So he's working and he's working and God knocks him to the ground, says, stop that, and puts a cross in front of him and says, hey, the work is already done. And the world said, boo, that's not true. And so then the cross says, you're dead. And the world gets crucified. I mean, that's what our passage says. We're used to Paul talking about us being crucified with Christ, and that's there too. But actually in this passage, Paul wants you to see that he died to that way of thinking so thoroughly it's like the world died too. The world died to Paul. Paul died to the world. The world says, keep working to heaven. And Paul says, I can't hear you. I'm dead to you. You're dead to me like a bad relationship I should never have had. I'm not listening. I'm blocking you in text messages. You can't get a hold of me. That's what Paul is saying in this passage. And that happened through the cross. He was working until he saw on the cross that that's the work he needed. Not his work that work. Not this work, that work. That's the work you need. Not your work, that work. Your work? No. That work. The world says, no, you also need your work. No, you don't. You need that work. It is the cross that kills you to that default way of thinking that you can somehow externally, physically work your way to heaven. That's why in Galatians, when Paul's confronting Peter, he says, a person is not justified by works of the law. It doesn't work. And he knows he tried harder than anyone else. Now, interestingly, there are not just religious ways for us to try to work our way to heaven, to have this worldly default mindset like the Judaizers. There are plenty of irreligious ways as well. You don't have to believe in Christianity one bit to go on social media or the news and look at the people on the other end of the political spectrum Look at the most extreme examples doing ridiculous things and put down your phone and go, oh, I feel much better about myself, <laughs> much worse about the world, but I'm not 
them. What are you doing? Working your way up the ladder. Working your way up the ladder. You're better than them. They're like that. They're not good. They're the bad team. You're the good team. You're not the good team. The cross comes in and says, look, you're all the bad team. But Christ is the only good one who ever lived, and he died for the bad team. He died for sinners. You trust in him and the whole old way of thinking that if you've ever tried to share the gospel, it is a remarkable experience, and you've probably, many of you had it, where you're sharing the gospel and trying to make this one point as clear as you can, that salvation is by faith alone, and it has nothing to do with what you bring to the table. It's not your works, but I've had many of these experiences. You have too. I know you're sharing that as clearly as you think it's even humanly possible to share that, and the other person is nodding, like, yeah, 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 yeah. And then when you have them repeat some of that back to you, it immediately goes to like, I know what, I get what you're saying, man. Yeah, I've been trying to turn my life around. No, you don't get what I'm saying. <laughs> That's not what I was saying. It's not what I, surprisingly unlike what I was saying, what you're saying right now. But again, that's because of the default, the worldly way of thinking. It's all here. It's all now. It's all what I do. And the cross comes in. That's why people don't like the cross. That's why the Jews and the Gentiles were like, we don't want anything to do with the cross. Because we've been working. We've been building up our reputation, our report to get to heaven. And the cross says, that's garbage. And when Paul, himself a zealous Jew, saw that in his own history, he said, well then, okay, everything I once was using to get right with God, I consider it all garbage, that I may gain Christ and be found in Him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes through the law of what I'm doing, but that which comes through faith in what He did on the cross. It doesn't matter how you are trying to get right with God, there's a whole variety of religions and ideas and even within Christianity out there. But if it's not by the cross, it will not work. It cannot work. That's why Paul says here, that whole way of thinking, of getting right with God any way but through the cross, the very cross that you're avoiding, that's the one that if you trust in Christ, it kills that way of thinking. <laughs> if you know Christ now, you know that there's been a change. Now you glory in the cross. This is why we glory in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. Because it is so exhausting trying to get rid of the guilt that we all innately feel. And we all have tried so many ways to do it. And you live in the terror of the uncertainty of not knowing whether you've done enough or if you even can do enough. And then if what you're doing to try to justify your existence has to do with your career, then you understand your career could end any day. If it has to do with building a nice home and family, you know your family can die. And you live in that uncertainty. That can wreck everything you are, everything you've built up, everything you've aimed for your life to be. But the cross comes in and says, that's all gone already. You don't need any of that. You don't need the family. You don't need the career. You don't need all the religious services to get you up here. You need one thing. It is up on that hill. It's been up on that hill for 2,000 years. It's still there welcoming all of us sinners. If we would leave behind us in the valley all the things we're trying to do and head up that hill to where Christ's cross is. And when you go there, your burden falls off your back.
You are headed for an eternity of bliss. And even in this life, reconciled relationships and joys, all the springs, the source of all the good life-giving joys of the Christian life are right there under the cross, bubbling out from that source. And that is why we say with Paul, we might not get excited about a lot of things, but there's one thing we get excited about. There's one thing we boast in, and it is the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen.